today we're going to be looking at mostly from God's perspective, speaking to Habakkuk. We have to realize that when God speaks to Habakkuk, he's also speaking to us. So let's stand and read God's word together. If you are using the Pew Bible, it's on page 785. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. He hastens to the end you will not lie. If he seems slow, wait for it. He will surely come. He will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shield. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers himself, all nations, and collects all as his own people. Shall not all these taken up their taunt against him who scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of men and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be saved for the, from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it's enough from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, a nation wearing themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze their nakedness. You will have your fear of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show yourself uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done in Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrifies them. For the blood of men and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! 
Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have this morning to gather together to worship you and to hear your word preached. May we be as Habakkuk people who are on that watch post waiting for how you will move us to respond to your word in obedience and in faith. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So in the mid-19th century, there is a job that you would not want to do. You would not want to be a sailor in the great country of Great Britain. It was a very dangerous job. Uh, shady ship owners would try to maximize their profits by overloading their ships. And these ships often sank in bad weather. Now you might think, oh no, that's so terrible. But the ship owners actually took out an insurance policy on these ships as well. And so this allowed them to make an even greater profit. And let me share with you how bad this practice of overloading ships was. Then the year 1873 to 1874, around the coastline of the United Kingdom, 411 ships sank and 506 people died. That overloading and poor repair made some ships so dangerous that they received this nickname, Coffin Ships. And when sailors refused to work on these coffin ships, when they failed to show up for work, the owners threw them in prison for desertion. It was unjust for these ship owners to overload their ships, for sailors to work on them. It was evil. And one might even call the practice wicked. Now, one might think that such wicked, unjust behavior is in the past. But we know this to be untrue, that wicked behavior continues to exist. And we experience the effects of such wicked behavior. A construction company decides to cut corners by using subpar concrete in the construction of an apartment complex. And this causes the complex to collapse, killing people. Wicked. A hiring manager elicits sexual favors from a potential employee? Wicked. Someone intentionally drinks themselves drunk at a party, and they decide to get behind the wheel, and they end up crashing into another car, killing a mother and child? Wicked. A corporate leader decides to cash out on a company before the financial report comes out that the company is actually insolvent. And this results in hundreds of people losing their jobs. Wicked. And I can probably go on and on, but you get the point. That we live in a world where we experience the effects of wickedness, injustice, evil. And this prompts us to ask the question, well, where is God in all this? Why does he allow such wickedness to happen? And we want to put God in the dock so that he can explain to us his reasoning for permitting such evil to happen. 
And this fall sermon series is addressing this topic of theodicy. How is God just to allow evil to exist? And last week, we learned that evil is not beyond his control, that he can use evil to accomplish his sovereign purposes, that nothing is outside of God's control or even influence. Now, sure, if we believe God is in control even as we experience wickedness, then what are we supposed to do? I mean, some people lost family members in the apartment collapse. A person has trauma from an instance of sexual harassment. A husband lost a wife and child to drunk driving. A person lost their job and is no longer able to pay their bills. It still hurts. It still grieves. It's still painful. What should we do? How should a believer respond when they experience the effects of wickedness? Now, to answer this question, we'll return to the book of Habakkuk. And thank you, John, for our reading this morning. And we'll be specifically in Habakkuk chapter 2, if you haven't turned there already. Now, Habakkuk chapter 2, of course, occurs uh, during the time of a king in Judah. His name is Jehoiakim. And so Habakkuk served as a prophet during the reign of Jehoiakim. And all around him, he sees injustice, wickedness. Judges pervert justice. The oppressed remain oppressed. The oppressor goes free. Government officials issue high taxes, fattening their wallets while citizens go hungry. Injustice. And Habakkuk asks the question, How long, O Lord? And God responds, I see the injustice in your society. I know the widow who received unfair treatment. I see government officials abusing their authority. And I will send the Chaldeans to destroy them. I will send the Chaldeans to destroy Judah in judgment. And Habakkuk, receiving this response, issues another complaint. I was like, oh, no, 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 wait a second. The Chaldeans? I mean, they're worse than us. How can you use them as an instrument of judgment? And Habakkuk waits again for God to respond. And this brings us to this morning's text in Habakkuk chapter 2. So this morning's text, we're going to answer three questions. First, when will God judge the wicked? When will this judgment come? And then second, how should we respond when we experience the effects of wickedness? What should we do? And lastly, why can we be confident? How can we have assurance that God will judge the wicked? So let's answer that first question. When will God judge the wicked? What is the timetable? What is the schedule? Well, the countdown to God's judgment of the wicked has already begun. God has already started the timer. The clock has been set. It has started to tick down. As each day passes, God's judgment draws closer. It's coming. The countdown to God's judgment has begun. And this is the response of God. This is how God answers Habakkuk, that the judgment of the wicked will come. It is on its way. 
Now, chapter 2 begins with Habakkuk waiting for God's reply. Look at verse 1. It says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And note where Habakkuk goes. He goes to a watch post. He overlooks the city of Jerusalem and he waits. Because he realizes he can't force God to respond quickly. But he knows that God will answer. It's just a matter of time. And even this simple act of waiting displays a trust in God. Now, we don't know how much time passes, but God does reply. And God begins his response with a command. The Habakkuk will take God's answer to the people. He will relay this message to others that God sends Habakkuk to proclaim the response. Look at verse 2. It says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Now, when you read this verse, or as you're hearing it read, there's a phrase that sounds kind of odd. So he may run who reads it. Well, what does the Lord mean by run? Well, ancient times, they didn't have email, text message, or tweets. They had to send a herald with the message into the town square to make a royal announcement. And this messenger would run to this place to make the announcement. So God appoints Habakkuk to serve as his herald, as a person who will make the announcement. But when will this message that Habakkuk is proclaiming, when will it be fulfilled? When will this judgment occur? And look at verse 3. It says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And we see that judgment is imminent. That everything will occur in God's previous response and subsequent response. Everything will occur soon. That the judgment of the wicked is coming. Now, we don't know the exact time. We don't know the hour, the minute, the day. But we know it's coming. And we need to wait for it. But before that judgment comes, God sends Habakkuk to warn the people. The Habakkuk must prepare the people for what is to come. And as Jason and Stan referenced in the previous sermons, the Babylonians would indeed come to destroy Judah for their disobedience in 586 B.C. Now, if judgment for the wicked came for Judah in 586, and that seems to be a past event, then what does it have to do with us? I mean, it still doesn't resolve the issue that wickedness still exists today and all this evil we are able to see, hear about, read about, but all judgment in this world serves as a precursor, as a foreshadowing of a future judgment. The, the flood, the plagues, the famines, and even Israel's exile foreshadows the day when Jesus Christ will return to the earth. And when Jesus returns, he will sit on his throne of judgment, and he will sentence the wicked to eternal destruction. But as we wait, as people who follow God wait, we have a responsibility as well, that we also are messengers, that we also are heralds, that God entrusts us with the same message of warning to take into the world 
to warn others that the judgment of God is coming, that we are to tell people of the destruction that awaits them if they persist, if they continue in their wicked deeds. But it also brings hope to the oppressed. It brings hope to the victimized. It brings relief to the grieving, for God will punish the oppressor, the abuser, the haughty. No one will get away with evil. Now, when is this judgment coming? Soon. The countdown has begun. But what do we do as we wait? And this brings us to the second question. How should we respond when we experience the effects of wickedness? What do we do? Well, we know that the judgment of the wicked is coming, but there are two people who respond to this message. You have the wicked and the righteous, the rebellious, the loyal, and each responds differently. That the wicked resist God's rule, while the righteous submit to God's rule, living by faith. That the rebellious continue to rebel, the loyal continue to remain faithful. The wicked will persist in doing evil, disbelieving any type of future judgment. The righteous will persist in obeying God, even though wickedness exists. That while the wicked (coughs) resist God's rule, the righteous submit to God's rule, living by faith. So let's see what God first says about the wicked Chaldeans. And he describes two aspects of their wickedness. He explains the reason for their wicked behavior, and then he uses an image to describe them. Now, what is the reason for the Chaldeans' wicked behavior? What motivates them to maim and destroy and murder? It's pride. That the Chaldeans resist God's rule because of their arrogance. Look at the first half of verse 4. Behold, his soul, referring to the Chaldeans, is puffed up and is not upright within him. That the Chaldeans are full of themselves. They boast in their achievements. They defeated the Syrians. They defeated the Egyptians. Who can stop the might of the Chaldean military? What God can save the people from our might? And this prompts them to resist God's rule. They don't need to follow God's design because they don't live by the adage, love your neighbor as yourself. They live by the philosophy, might makes right. Do not steal, we take what we want. Do not murder, we kill who we want. And the Chaldeans, believing in their superiority, do not live according to God's rule. So pride motivates the Chaldeans' behavior. And there is the second description, the image. And God uses the image of wine to describe them. Look at verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And the ancient world knew of the Chaldeans' fondness for drink. That when a person drinks excessively, it removes inhibition and increases wicked behavior. That strong drink amplifies pride. Drunk people act selfishly, taking what they want without the regard of others. And the Chaldeans are like a drunk person who will continue to take and continue to plunder. For just as death can never have enough lives, 
the Chaldeans can never have enough. And things will get worse before they get better. So the Lord provides this description of the wicked Chaldeans, and they will rampage across the ancient world. But then what about the righteous? What do they do? And God provides a description of the righteous as well. And we see this in the latter half of verse 5. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Now we're going to spend some time meditating on this phrase, this section of verse 4. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Well, first, who is the righteous? Are they the ones who do good? Are they the ones who pull over when they see an accident on the road to help? Are they the ones who spend the weekends serving at their local food bank? Are they ones who always get to their work on time and finish it on time? No. That when the Bible talks about righteousness, <coughs> it refers to people who are in right relationship with God. That the righteous have a covenantal relationship with God. Now, how did Israel enter into a covenantal relationship with God? If you think back to the book of Exodus, Israel believed God after he helped them cross the Red Sea. And just for those of you who are thinking, it's like, wait a minute, I thought they became God's people when they received the law. Well, you actually have a few more chapters before they received the law. So this means that Israel became God's people even before the law was given. That Israel entered into this relationship with God by believing that God had saved them and would continue to save them. So the righteous have a relationship with God. He is their king. They are his subjects. He is their savior. They are the rescued. But what else should we know about the righteous? The righteous trust in God's character. They believe in who God is. In the context of wickedness, a righteous person trusts in God's justice. Well, what does it mean for God to be just? And we, when we think about justice, we think about lawyer dramas. We think about a judge sitting in the courtroom. He hears the argument from the prosecutor, defendant. He weighs the evidence, the arguments, and then he renders the best possible judgment. That's what we think when we think about a judge rendering justice. But that only partially describes God's justice. Because let's think about it for a moment. God is the creator of the universe. He is the creator. He has the authority to determine right from wrong because he created the rules. And since God created the rules, he judges according to them. But God cannot compare to any human judge because a human judge is limited by their intellect, their ability to reason, their knowledge of the law. But God has no limits. He doesn't need evidence whenever a crime is committed. Because when the crime is committed, he's there. When the murderer decides to kill a victim, he's present. When a person decides to embezzle funds from a company, he's present. And not only is he present when the crime of wickedness is committed, but he also knows the thoughts of the wicked as well. He knows what the murderer is thinking when he takes a life. He knows what a thief is thinking before he steals and as he steals. And not only does God know the crime and the motivation, but he knows the punishment that will perfectly fit the crime. 
human judges approximate justice. This sentence best fits the crime. Ten years in prison, a fine, community service. But God knows the perfect sentence to render every single time. And this makes God's justice unlike anything we have ever seen or even heard of. And this makes him holy that he is set apart even in his justice. And the righteous can trust that in God's sovereignty, the wicked will receive their just deserts, that the wicked will receive their punishment. Then this prompts the righteous to then live out their lives by faith, that they submit to God's rule by living out their faith, that they defer to God's judgment. They decide, yes, Lord, wickedness sucks. Yes, injustice hurts. Yes, it breaks my heart when I see people mistreated. But I will not take judgment into my own hands if I don't receive justice on this earth because justice, judgment, belongs to you. Now, does this mean that a believer should never press charges against a thief? Should a believer never report a murder? Should a believer just allow wickedness to occur? No. Because to live out our faith means that we do what is within our power to address the wickedness that we experience. If we can file a police report, then we do so. If we can testify against a crime, then we do so. If we can sue a person rightly for damages, then we do so. But the righteous realize that the results are ultimately up to God. That if they receive some semblance of justice in human court, then the righteous give thanks. But if they don't receive justice even in the human court of law, then they know that justice is deferred. For there will be one day when God will ensure that justice is done. And until that day, a believer lives out their faith. Now, Habakkuk's command for righteous Israelites to live faithfully applies to Christians as well. It applies to each and every one of us. That this instruction is not just for the past, it's also for the present. That we live by faith even though we may experience the effects of wickedness. That we obey God even though evil occurs all around us. But why is this true? Well, this section in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, is actually cited in three places within the New Testament. Paul cites it twice in his letters, and the author of Hebrews also cites it once. So I'm going to go over these references. Now, the first place, or one of the places that we find the citation of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, is found specifically in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. I'm going to read it for us. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying just as Jews entered into a relationship with God through faith, God has now made an opportunity for Gentiles, non-Jews, to also have a relationship with God through faith. And where do I get that from? Because there's no Jew or Gentile mentioned in verse 17. It's because of the previous verse in verse 16 that says that the gospel is the power of salvation first to the Jews and then also to the Greeks. And so this means that the gospel is for everyone through faith. 
Now, the second place where Paul cites Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, is Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. And let me read it for us. It says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So how does one become right before God? How does one please God? Is it by following the law? Is it about earning favor with the Lord by doing things? No. Paul is writing and he's using Habakkuk 2.4 to say that the only way that you can have a right relationship with God is through faith. And you experience fellowship with God when you live by faith. Now there's one last reference. It's found in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and it's specifically in verse 38, but for some context, I'm going to read verse 37 as well. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37 to 38 says this, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him." Now, what the author of Hebrews is trying to say in this passage is that when believers suffer, when they encounter persecution, they may be tempted to give up on Christ. They may think that it's not worth it. But the author is trying to remind them, Jesus is going to come back. He is going to make things right. But before Jesus comes back, his people will live by faith. And if a believer persists to live by faith, then they can trust that God, Jesus, will return to make things right. But if a person fails to live by faith, if they decide to give up on God because of the suffering that they experience, then they reveal, they show, that they didn't have faith to begin with. And God then has no pleasure in them. So just to summarize these passages, We enter into a relationship with God by faith. We continue to fellowship with God by faith. So what does it mean to live by faith? Well, faith has three elements. First, there is the element of knowledge, that there is a body of content that we must know. In the case of Christianity, we know that we are wicked people deserving of God's wrath. But God saved us from this wrath through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we believe in the work of Christ, then the righteousness of Christ becomes our own while Jesus suffers the penalty for our sin. That's what we need to know. But the second element of faith is assent. Do we agree with what we know? Do we believe in it? Do we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again? Do we believe this? That's the second element of faith. And the last element of faith is this idea of commitment. That we commit ourselves to conduct our lives in light of all the truths of the gospel. For instance, God commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. This means that we seek out justice for our neighbors. We provide for their needs when they lose a job. If someone experiences trauma, then we listen to them recount their experience. If a person loses a loved one due to injustice, then we grieve with them. And we may also act on their behalf. We may advocate for them to seek out justice. 
But commitment to the gospel, belief in the gospel, also means that we have hope. We have a hope that even if we do not experience justice now, that the wicked will receive due punishment when Christ returns. So as you experience wickedness around you, do you have faith? You may know, you may believe, but are you committed? Do you commit yourself to the truths that you know? Have you believed in what Christ's redeeming work on the cross has done for you? Because if not, then God's judgment will come upon you along with the wicked around you. Why can I say that? What is the reason that makes me say that? And this brings us to our last question. Why can we be confident that God will judge the wicked? What makes me certain that God will punish the evildoers? Because after all, the wicked refuse to submit to God's rule, but they will persist. They will continue. They will never cease to rebel. And the refusal of the wicked to submit to God's rule causes God's judgment. That a failure of the wicked to turn from their ways means that God's punishment awaits them. God will not forget their iniquity. There is no place that a person can go to escape God's judgment. That even the dead will be resurrected to experience judgment. The refusal of the wicked to submit to God's rule causes God's judgment. Now, we see that God completes his response to Habakkuk with a series of woes from verse 6 all the way to verse 20. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, it's already 1017. How is he going to finish 14 verses? I will not. But I will make a comment in terms of the last woe because of the five, the last one is unique. Because if you look at the text, every single woe begins with woe to him. Verse 6, verse 9, woe to him. Verse 12, woe to him. And then when you get to last woe, it has that phrase, but it doesn't begin the woe. That woe begins right in the middle. And in the fifth woe, this fifth judgment, God condemns the Chaldeans for their idolatry. And this is why it's structured differently, to highlight, to point out so that you would pause and wonder what is actually coming. So our focus in this last section will be in verse 18 to 20, that God declares a woe on the Chaldeans for the worship of idols. Now, the first point that God wants to make is that people make idols. Idols are creations. They are not creators. Look at verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Note the phrase, teacher of lies. A statue may give you the vibes that has supernatural power. If you rub it, maybe it'll give you good luck. Or maybe if you offer incense to it, it'll give you good grades. But the idol can't do anything. It can't do anything like that. And then the second thing that God does is that he mocks the idols for their muteness. Look at verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. When you speak to the idol, it does not respond to you. 
It's mute. It has no life in it. It's dead. And the third thing that God comments about the idol is that he contrasts it to himself. God is in control. The idol is not. That all creation will be in awe of God when judgment comes. Look at verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, Habakkuk refers to God's temple in Jerusalem, and even though it is destroyed by the Babylonians, it will be raised up again, and then it will be destroyed. But it's likely that this verse is referring to God when he returns to the new heavens and new earth, where he will establish his dwelling place among men, and he will judge. But before then, he still is seated in his holy temple above, above everything. And he sovereignly controls all things. And the wicked on that day will be silent because they will receive their just deserts, while the righteous will stand in awe of him, in reverence of him. Now, what's the big deal about the idols? I mean, many of us do not carry idols around in our bags. I mean, these idols are not physical statues that we set up in our homes, but an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. It absorbs your attention. You must have it. You must get it. For instance, the Bible even calls covetousness idolatry. This means you can make your job, your family, your relationships, your academics, or even your hobbies an idol. And idols deceive you. They tell you a lie. They say that if you have me, if you get me, you will be satisfied. If you finally get this salary, then you will be satisfied. But you won't, because there's always a higher salary to be gained. There's always more influence to be gotten. There's always a nicer office. If you think, finally, my family, they will finally acknowledge me, then I will mean something. And so you try to excel in your career, but your family still doesn't recognize you. You get married and have children, and your family says, eh, and that promise, that desire for your family to be pleased, it will never come. And it will never deliver. And these idols make you think that we, this idol, is better than God and it's worth following. But what does this have to do with wickedness? People often do wicked things because of idols. Someone may idolize wealth, and this causes them to put in a lower quality part in a car engine so they can pocket the difference. But the car catches on fire and kills someone. Wicked activity. Someone might idolize what people think of them, so when their supervisor pressures them to change numbers on a financial report, they do it. But when the truth comes out that the numbers are inflated, it causes stock prices to go down, people who invest in the company lose their retirement accounts. Wicked. When people prefer idols and they refuse to submit to God's rule, it results in wickedness. And they refuse to acknowledge that there's only one king, one ruler, God. And God's judgment awaits those who refuse to give up their idols. And if you continue to pursue your idols, then you will experience God's wrath just as the wicked. So identify your idols before they cause your ruin. Give them up. Turn to the Lord in faith. And if you do, then you'll be counted among the righteous in the day of judgment. 
So to summarize, what should believers do when they experience the effects of wickedness? They should live by faith because the countdown to judgment of the wicked has begun. And the judgment is assured because the wicked refuse to submit God's rule. They refuse to submit. And God's judgment for them is coming. So whatever happened to those coffin ships in the United Kingdom during the 19th century? Well, in 1868, a young British politician by the name Samuel Plimsoll applied his biblical faith to address this issue. And under his leadership, Parliament passed the 1875 Merchant Shipping Act, and this marked the end for coffin ships. And from that day forth, ships would display a plimsoll mark, and this line would be painted on the ship's hull to depict how deep they could safely sit on water to prevent overloading. And this practice would save many seamen caught in an unjust situation. And while plimsoll saved the lives of future sailors, the question is, will there be justice for the sailors who lost their lives prior to the passing of this act? And for those who are believers, we can answer assuredly, yes, because the wicked will not escape God's judgment. So as we see and experience the effects of wickedness around us, may the Lord help us to do what we can, yes, to bring about justice. But if we can't, we live faithfully anticipating the justice of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed just. And even though we may not be able to explain why the wickedness around us happens to us, why we might be able to experience it, may your Spirit give us the power to be faithful, to live according to the faith and to the trust that we know that one day justice will be meted out. Help us, Lord, to live in light of that day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.